joining us on this lawn or via the live stream. Thanks for bringing the church into both of those spaces. This is great to just look at you without a giant tree standing in front of you. It's been weird preaching to a tree for two months, so I'm glad to not include that in the receiving end of this sermon. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets the privilege most weeks of opening up the scriptures and unpacking them as we gather together. We're going to do that again this morning. Shocking, I know. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 13 this morning, verses 11 through 14, the last four verses of this book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, but you have a digital device, you can go to esv.org and pull up the translation that we'll be using. That's a free resource. Uh, you can also, as a way of tracking, if you're a visual learner, right up under that link for song lyrics on our digital connect guide is a link for a PDF of the sermon slide. So uh, if you want to track with what would normally be up on a screen behind me, if we were in the auditorium right now, you can pull that up and, and follow along as we work our way through this morning's passage Also, to mention, as it pertains to that digital connect guide, right up under the song lyrics and sermon slides links are uh, a couple of connecting links if you're new. So there's a uh, newcomer uh, connect card that you can fill out uh, if you've been engaging with us over the past few weeks to share a little bit about who you are, give us some space to kind of connect with you and share a little bit more about who we are as a church, where we're going, what we're all about. And then underneath that is a sign up for community groups. So if you're not a part of a community group, we'd love to onboard you as we look to move into this new ministry season of the fall that that is to come. We're actually launching groups a week from today. And so I would love to share more about what those groups are going to look like moving into the fall with you if you're interested in that. Let me uh, me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we... We come to you this morning asking you to do a great work in our hearts. We might walk away filled with conviction and and hope in in light of our time in the scriptures this morning. Would you do that? Would you attend the preaching of your word in power, plead with you to save lost sinners and to sanctify stumbling saints like myself by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. So this is it. If you ever wondered if we were going to get to the end of this book of the Bible, this sermon series that we started, I believe, the first Sunday in 2020, which has proved to be quite the strange year in in more ways than one. We're here. Last four verses of this book of the Bible, the last sermon. What what I want us to see this morning is pretty simple. It's this simple yet profound way that the Apostle Paul, in just a few short verses, a few brief sentences, manages to incorporate many of the major themes of of this letter, putting this perfect bow, you might say, on this gospel-saturated package that we call 2 Corinthians before sending it off to the church in that city. If you pick up in verse 11, Paul, Paul enters into this last section of this letter, this last passage with these words. He says, finally, brothers. Okay, let me, now let me just stop there. And promise you that this is still going to be roughly an hour long service. Because I think there's something significant in that address of the church that would be really easy to overlook at a cursory glance. I mentioned several times throughout this letter that 2 Corinthians is a three-part letter, a three-section letter. The first part focusing on Paul's defense of his apostolic authority, uh, chapters 1 through 7, as a minister of the new covenant. 
The second part focusing on this idea of sacrificial generosity, which we see in chapters eight and nine. And then the third part focusing on Paul's call to the rebellious minority in Corinth to repent while they still have time, chapters 10 through 13. If you go back to the first two sections, what you'll notice is that Paul leads out in both of those sections with the word brothers. He says in chapter one, verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. And then if you fast forward to the very first verse of section two, chapter eight, verse one, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And here's the strange thing. If you scan the third part of this letter, chapters 10 through 13, all the way up to this point, you'll notice that the word brothers is absent. Paul doesn't use that for the better part of chapters 10 through 13, which happens to be the section where he's addressing his opponents, the unrepentant. Here in this morning's passage, Paul addresses the entire church with the word brothers. That's meant to be a huge encouragement to us. He's He's communicating something of of the hope and expectation that repentance is going to, in fact, come to pass for these people, that all on the receiving end of this letter will prove to be genuine children of God. In other words, Paul's anticipating or expecting the best rather than assuming the worst in those on the other side of this writing. I was talking to a brother in this church earlier this week, and, and one of the things that that I mentioned in that conversation that, that I'm becoming more and more increasingly convinced would be really helpful for the church if we, if we took on this posture, particularly in the midst of all the craziness that surrounds us right now, is this idea of one, doing what Paul's doing, which is to look out on the other person, whether it be in a conversation or as we're looking at others in their decision-making, their thinking, their processing of things pandemic-related or things related to the swirling waters of racial tension, that If we looked at that other person and thought, there's probably something I don't know about them that I would celebrate that would be noble and honorable to the Lord if I would tap into that relationship a little more. And then on the flip side, like the Apostle Paul as well, if I would look at myself and and think, there's probably something more sinister there that I'm unaware of. As Paul would call himself the chief of sinners, the least of of the apostles. Here expecting the, the best anticipating repentance rather than assuming the the worst. He goes on to say, rejoice, rejoice. That's the first in a a list of commands that we see here in in this, this morning's sermon that Paul incorporates as a way of kind of summarizing all that he's been driving at for the better part of 13 chapters. As we've talked about before numerous times as a church, Paul was a Christian hedonist, He was committed to pursuing pleasure to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. I mean, we're talking about the same man, crazy as it may seem, who endured all of the various sufferings mentioned throughout this letter as as Paul would later write from a Roman prison, Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That Paul believed that if you add up all of the losses and replace them with Jesus, that you actually gain on that transaction, that that's good gospel economics. That much of this letter has been Paul fighting for those who have been functioning as enemies of their own joy. If you go all the way back to 
chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, but I, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but here it is. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. That we're, we're hardwired to per- pursue happiness, all of us. We, we chase after it even when we think it's elusive. We talked about that a lot in the Ecclesiastes series, right? That even if we've lost all hope of ever obtaining it, that tends to spiral us into depression. We grieve it because it's something that, that we desire. People across the world, including us, we're, we're looking for it in a thousand different places, whether it's the next romantic interest or the next tax bracket or the next like on social media. And make no mistake, none of those things are bad things, right? But as we talk about often as well as a church, we, we have this tendency to take good things and elevate them to ultimate things or God things. And at that point, we actually become enemies of our, our own joy as we allow ourselves to be distracted by trinkets when treasure is within our grasp. The, the Apostle Paul's ambition in life, it, it was that people know true, lasting joy, the kind of joy that can only be found in the God who designed us to be happy in him. He goes on to say, aim for restoration. That's a, interestingly, that's the same language used in the gospels to describe the disciples mending their fishing nets. It's also the, the language of a broken bone being put back in place. That without mending, a, a torn fishing net loses its functionality, right? You're probably not going to bring a lot of fish in the boat. Without being set, the same is true of a broken bone. You're probably not going to get too far on that broken body part. Paul understands that similarly, a fractured church is no church at all. As he calls those in Corinth to mend that which is broken. That we've been made ambassadors of of reconciliation, which we have frequent opportunity to, to practice as the church particularly in the midst of this sort of polarizing, well, not sort of, it is polarizing, divisive culture in which we we find ourselves, which fans into flame this sort of us against them outlook on relationships with other people. If you go all the way back to chapter five, one of the more famous passages in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That we live in a, an incredibly divisive day and age, this cultural moment in which the church has an opportunity to counterculturally shine. To, to, to bring back a quote that I shared a few months back in addressing the danger of divisiveness within the church in this strange season in which we find ourselves, Jonathan Edwards once said this of heaven, he said, every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and altogether blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. We get, we get to practice for that beautiful symphony now as we die to the flesh and live by the Spirit. 
the spirit of love, going back to Galatians 5, the spirit of peace, the spirit of kindness. As I mentioned a couple of months ago, the, the enemy would seek to destroy our song in the weeks and months to come that we might end up just as socially distant on the other side of COVID-19, but no longer because of a virus. John 13, 35, people will know that we are Jesus's disciples by the love that we have for one another. That Jesus's flesh, you could say, was torn so that we as the church don't have to be. So that one of the questions I think that comes out of a passage like this is, where might God be calling you and me to mend that which is relationally broken? To have a hard conversation for the sake of healing and reconciliation. The idea that there would be none within this church family would be mind-blowing. And so I think it's fair for us to ask that question. Who do I need to move toward? Even going back to what I was saying a few moments ago and perhaps come with that posture of asking, what don't I know that I should know that would excite me of what God's been doing in your life? And will you help me to see what I can't see in me that's probably more sinister than I even know? Paul continues with the words, comfort one another. Going back to the the very beginning of this letter, really, the very first few verses, chapter one, verses three and four, Paul said there, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There it is, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul refers to God as the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, that the God of Christianity is a sovereign king and a loving father, a both and worthy of our trust, particularly in the midst of suffering, particularly in the midst of discouragement and fear. The kind of father who feels something of a visceral compassion for his children, the kind of God who intimately comforts and encourages his people and who gives us this, this ministry in and through our experience of affliction and the comfort that we receive from him in those experiences of affliction. Not only that we might evangelistically show the world this sort of paradox of the gospel, God's power made perfect in weakness as we declare in the midst of our greatest hardships that Jesus is enough, but, but also that we might comfort fellow brothers and sisters in Christ within the family of faith as we empathetically meet them with the same comfort and affliction that God met us. So that as I asked when we were back in chapter one of this series, where do you, where do you see opportunities around you to, to bring this ministry of comfort that Paul talks about to bear in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? He goes on to say, agree with one another. That's almost laughable right now in this moment in which we find ourselves. It's this call to, to God glorifying like-mindedness, a oneness in the gospel. Uh, Paul talks with this kind of language elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2 where, where he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy, here it is, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, here it is again, and of one mind. You might ask, well, what, what does that practically mean? Does that mean we should agree on everything, primary, secondary, tertiary? It's a question that, that Paul goes on to answer in that very same passage. What does it mean to, to be of same mind in full accord? He says, continuing in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, he says, here it is. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. Here's the, 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 the unified sound mind, same mind. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is Paul saying in Philippians 2 and in this morning's passage? He's saying, don't live your life, if I could paraphrase it, clawing to be the main attraction, fixated only on your own interests, like those super apostles in Corinth. But rather he's saying, pursue a, a oneness in the gospel in which humble others-focused servanthood is the cadence to which you and I march, like Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. That the, the gospel and selfish ambition, they don't mix. That's like oil and water. Nor do the gospel and divisiveness. That the picture of, of Jesus in Philippians 2 and in this morning's passage is meant to, it's meant to stir our hearts in such a way that that humility becomes more appealing than vainglory. In such a way that, that unity becomes more appealing than divisiveness. In such a way that sacrificing for the good of others becomes more appealing than advancing our own ambitions. Agree with one another, Paul says, humbly fighting for unity for the sake of the gospel. He continues saying, live in peace, which is, not so much having to do with, with the idea of peace of mind or anxiety of heart. Paul's not asking us to be introspective in that way here. Rather, he's focusing on peace among brothers and sisters in Christ on the basis of the surrounding context. This is about one anothering. Again, Paul's calling for, for a wholeness and, and harmony, one that reflects the peacemaking work of Jesus by the blood of his cross. As we, as we gather together via lawn and via live stream, Two different platforms in the midst of an incredibly visceral moment heightened by exhaustion. The gospel calls us to peacemaking and unity to enter where the hope of re reconciliation is, is needed. And then he goes on out of those commands to say this, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's an interesting use of language that Paul uses there. That's not language that we find elsewhere. You see the God of peace over and over again, several different places in scripture, but you won't find the God of love and peace anywhere else. It helps us to get, get a window into Paul's thinking as he's writing this letter, namely that he's addressing a lack of love. That the Corinthian church wasn't known for its love as much as it was known for jealousy and strife, which is why going back to the previous letter, 1 Corinthians 13, very famous passage of scripture too, Paul says, Verses one through three, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that's a lot of faith, not really, mustard seed or more, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing, Paul says. 
that the saints in Corinth needed to be reminded of the way of love, as do we in the midst of everything that surrounds us and every other church around us as well. That the encouraging thing about this description, the, the God of love and peace, it's that it declares the source of that which we need to live out any of these commands. I mean, isn't it good news that God who supplies that which he demands of his people is a God of love and peace as he calls us to love and peace? That the Holy Spirit, again, Galatians 5, is a spirit of love, joy, peace, etc., who empowers love, joy, and peace in the hearts and lives of those whom he indwells. Paul goes on to, to help make further sense of this kind of love that he envisions as he communicates something of the affection between those who are in Christ, as he says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. One of the favorite among youth group boys as they pursue their love interests. What's Paul doing there? Uh, the, the Apostle Paul is the, the first, believe it or not, recorded example of someone in the Greco-Roman world calling an entire group comprising of different genres, races, and socioeconomic statuses to this kind of practice. Typically reserved for family members, on occasion formal greetings. What does Paul have in mind? I don't think it'll come as, as any surprise to know that that he has in his mind the establishment of an entirely new society, the family of God in Christ, which is why he says in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not doing away with distinctions but rather he's driving at the fact that we've all been made one in Jesus, brought into a, a forever family, a picture that we see over and over again in, in scripture. Just a few examples. Matthew chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. We're told in stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, here are my, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or 2 Corinthians, this very book of the Bible that we're in, chapter 6, verse 18. And I will be a father to you, God says, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Or 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The, the, the practice of greeting siblings in Christ with a holy kiss was so commonplace that you it actually shows up four other places in the bible does that mean we should all be kissing each other <laughs> not necessarily the, the application is not so much about the form of affection but rather the communication that you matter to me like my own flesh and blood family and so we have to ask in the midst of this weird moment in which we find ourselves how are you operating with your own flesh and blood loved ones. I mean, there are members of my family right now with whom I'm distancing my phys phys physical affection on purpose because of numerous immune deficiency issues that they're going through out of love for them. And there are others that I'm embracing. The, the present tense application of Paul's words carry with them this complexity that we have to wrestle through. 
But the bottom line is this, that we should, we should view and treat our siblings in Christ like the forever family that they are. That the church is not a second-rate family. In fact, the church is who we're going to be with forever. And it goes beyond any one local individual church body. As Paul says in verse 13, all the saints greet you. Meaning that, that this familial love, it's not restricted to the local expression of the bride of Christ, but rather it's universal in expression. Some of my dearest friends, and many of you know this experience as well, are invested in other churches, even in other cities, many of them, and are among the greatest encouragements to me in the faith. So what the gospel does, it, it unites people throughout the world who share a primary identity in Jesus, this global expression of God's sovereign grace. Which makes sense as to why Paul would close out this letter, speaking of grace, with these words. In verse 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What a great ending. Right? This, is, this is the Apostle Paul's only recorded Trinitarian benediction in Scripture, meaning a, a pronouncement of blessing that includes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. Many scholars believe that the Son is listed before the Father in this verse because it's through the finished work of Jesus that we come to know the Father's love and the Spirit's fellowship. Just, just think about that for a moment. Consider how our lives might be different if we leaned into the fullness of the Trinitarian benefits that are ours as Christians that Paul talks about in this verse alone. The love of the Father. How much of the sin and unbelief in our lives is rooted in a forgetfulness having to do with the depth of the Father's love for us. If I could just remind us this morning of the wonder of the father's love Romans 5 8 but God shows his love for us for you and for me and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us first John four ten, in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the wrath bearer for our sins Romans 8 38 and 39 Paul says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is our Abba and we are his children. We're talking about a love wide enough to embrace the world, love long enough to span the scope of eternity, never ending, a love deep enough to get beneath the worst of your sin and a love high enough to raise you with Jesus and seat you with him in the heavenly places. My goodness. And then there's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. Not only the grace of his saving work in redeeming lost sinners, though that's part of it for sure, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Yes, the grace of his saving work. But also, as Paul's talked about in this letter, a grace sufficient enough to sustain God's people in the midst of their weaknesses and sufferings. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you think he's talking comprehensive there? I think so. He says, you may abound in every good work. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, Jesus did, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Every morning, without fail, there's not a day that, that Jesus takes off from his job of supplying us with the grace that we need to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Every morning, his grace is sufficient. Every morning, his mercies are new, including this one. And then there's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, communicating something of, of our communion with the Spirit of God, our enjoyment of the Spirit of God as, as individuals. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made, here it is, to drink of one spirit. That verb translated made to drink is sometimes in Scripture used of irrigation. Meaning that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, saturates your life, whether you feel like he does or not. On the other hand, Paul's language of the fellowship of the Spirit, communicating something of the fellowship that the Spirit produces in us in relation to each other. Again, that one another in kind of thinking. As Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, he says, here it is, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Again, we're talking about a, a spirit indwelled forever family. So that Paul's saying, what, whatever previously separated you, You've been joined together by the one Holy Spirit. May that kind of fellowship be with you all. I mean, talk about a, a verse filled with Trinitarian wonder, like Trinitarian beauty. That's why we sing songs like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I would ask this morning, do, do, you, do you have a relationship with this Trinitarian God? Have you been brought into this forever family by grace through faith in Christ? If not, I invite you to, to turn to Jesus, to, to put your trust in him and his finished work of redemption, his perfect sinless life lived for you, his shameful sinner's death died for you. To cry out to him now as Savior and King, becoming a part of this countercultural family of God. Not only is this a, a hopeful way to end a letter for its Trinitarian wonder and beauty, but also for its final address. Look at the last words of this book of the Bible. The language of you all in closing the letter. Or if Paul was from the South, he'd say y'all there. Again, communicating something of, of his hope, his expectation that, that repentance would indeed come to pass, that all on the receiving end of this letter would prove to be genuine children of God. I mean, the truth is we, we really don't know how things played out for this church. We can't be certain. On the one hand, some argue that the response of the, the church in Corinth 
may have been a favorable one on the basis of what appears to be a three-month visit, Acts chapter 20, to the city of Corinth in the wake of this letter, arguing that, that Paul likely wouldn't have spent three months in a city in which things were heated and, and he wasn't welcomed, nor would he have likely had the peace of mind to write his letter to the Romans, arguably one of the most theologically rich books in all of the Bible. He'd probably need some headspace for that one. But then there are others who, who argue that things didn't get better on the basis of a letter sent by the Bishop of Rome, a man named Clement, to the church in Corinth just a few decades after this writing that we've been studying for months. The contents of that letter revealing that the church was still struggling with immaturity and instability, with dissension and, and division front and center yet again. The uncertainty as to how things played out for the church in Corinth I think it leaves us with the question of whether or not you and I will heed Paul's words. It's kind of like Jesus' parables or the way the book of Jonah ends, leaving you with a question rather than a, a conclusion of sorts. Will we trust God in the midst of present uncertainty, knowing that our future is certain? Will we boast of our weaknesses, knowing that God uses them to produce in us humility and strength? Will we live as ambassadors of reconciliation, knowing that we've been undeservedly reconciled to God in Christ? Will we live lives of radical generosity, knowing that Jesus has been radically generous to us in becoming poor for our sake so that we might become rich? And on and on we could go with the themes of this great book of the Bible. We have everything we need, according to the Apostle Paul. We have the love of the Father, we have the grace of the Son, and we have the fellowship of the Spirit. May we live in light of the, the wonder of the, the Trinitarian blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, not only as we leave this place this morning, but as we wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day, fighting this good fight of faith, not as individuals, but as members of a forever family, both local and universal. 